Chronotypes, Inclusion in Science, and Teaching Children About Sexuality. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Well, don't adjust your television sets. This podcast is now a video. <laughs> oh, man, this is wild. If you're listening as normal in Apple Podcasts or Switcher or Google Podcasts or a podcast platform, this episode should sound basically normal. But if you're watching this video on Instagram TV or YouTube or Facebook, you've realized that I'm trying something new, and that's a video edition of Ask Science Mike. Wow, this is wild. This is new. I was talking with Victory and Tanner, two of the people who helped me out on, uh, well, everything I do, but that includes uh, Ask Science Mike. And Tanner thought it would be cool to try a video version of the podcast. And so <laughs> I'm literally just trying it on my own. Uh, eventually, if this works, we'll probably try it with actual production support. But uh, today, I'm the one operating the, the audio equipment, the video equipment, the switcher that does all the graphics on the screen. So if you see me looking down, that's because I'm trying to literally operate the video portion of the podcast. I think it's going to sound basically normal to listeners. Gosh, whatever. I'm getting ahead of myself. If this is your first time watching Ask Science Mike, uh, I am Mike McCarg, as you can see from this really fancy graphic I just put on the screen. <laughs> I'm also known as Science Mike. I'm the host of Ask Science Mike. And this is a weekly podcast uh, where we believe that every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. That's the point of this program, to reward curiosity. There are so many topics and questions we have in our lives that for one reason or another, we often just don't feel safe asking other people. This show started with me asking questions that weren't allowed in my religious upbringing and my religious adulthood. But as I begin to respond to questions in an honest and non-judgmental way, I found that people from all kinds of backgrounds and in all kinds of communities have questions they don't feel safe asking those in their lives. Questions not only about sex and sexuality or the fundamentals of science, but also about equality, inclusion, justice, all kinds of issues. People have questions. And this is a place where I'll respond to you honestly. As a non-expert, I'm just a guy who likes to read a lot, who's had a, a difficult life and a lot of suffering. And um, for some reason, thousands of people every week tune into this podcast. And I think it's because I just really like all of you. And I think it's okay if people have questions and people have curiosity. And if sometimes those questions uh, scrape up against taboos or sometimes uh, because of our backgrounds, People have learned things at different rates. And what's obvious to someone else is new to you. And as someone who's learned a lot of things later in life, it is my joy to welcome people into new knowledge and new understanding. And this is such an amazing and important time in my life right now because we are moving towards the launch of something I am so excited about. And that's this book. It's called You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. And uh, there's so much happening right now in relation 
to this book. Number one, again, it comes out April 28th. It's an exploration of why we think and do and feel things in a different way than we want to think and do and feel. Why is it we feel anxiety when we don't like to be anxious? Why is it that when we know we need a good night's sleep, we just keep watching Netflix? Why is it that when we know often that we are struggling with health challenges and health obstacles, that we continue to eat foods that aren't good for us? Why is it that we have panic attacks and anxiety and and all these things? That's what the book is about. And uh, I'll be honest, it's really hard to launch a book in the face of a global pandemic. So I'm so proud of every on my events team and at my publisher and at the independent bookstores that are partnering with me that we are still proceeding towards this launch. And actually, that is something I'd love to tell you about. Uh, I am going on a tour all over the country. Yeah, that's right. I'm going on tour in the middle of a pandemic, but not quite a normal tour. The point of this tour is to do something that is safe and happens in your home. So this is a way that we can be together when we're not all able to be together. And the tour is going to happen in your home and it will happen on uh, in a lot of cities. Uh, April 27th will be in Atlanta, Georgia. April 28th, Nashville, Tennessee. April 29th, Minneapolis. April 30th, Seattle. May 1st, Portland. Uh, then we'll go from there. May 5th to Dallas. May 6th, Austin. May 8th, Los Angeles. May 9th, Houston, Texas. May 12th, Washington, D.C. May 13th, New York, New York. May 16th, Chicago. May 19th, Charlotte. May 21st, San Francisco. May 22nd, Denver. May 26th, Philadelphia. May 28th, Detroit. May 30th, Grand Rapids. Uh, and then after that in June, June 2nd, Boston. Uh, June 4th, Orlando, back in my home state of Florida. And June 5th, Raleigh, North Carolina. And I am just absolutely thrilled to go on the road and see you all again without leaving my house, without violating social distancing order. And we've come up with some really great things here. You're going to get a copy of the book with your ticket. You're going to get a personalized item from me, either a book plate or a postcard that I'm going to hand write to you and inscribe to you personally. I'm so excited to do all of this, to get more information about that and about the book itself and about pre-order bonuses that I don't even have time to talk to talk about this week. This is a major week for the book as we move towards launch. I'd like to invite you to go to AskScienceMike.com slash new book. I'll say that URL again, AskScienceMike.com slash new book. And there you can learn all about where you can buy the book, how you can be a part of the tour. Tickets are on sale today. And by the way, there are unlimited free scholarship tickets at every stop because I know people are facing economic uncertainty right now. So I'm really, really happy uh, that we're able to do that and able to offer that. Uh, and then you can also learn about pre-order bonuses, how you can start reading the book today, even before it comes out by getting a copy of the first three chapters as a PDF, as well as be a part of the official book club that I'm leading. So if you want to read the book alongside me, I've got an official book book club and all that information is available. Again, AskScienceMike.com slash new book.
Did you just see how fancy that was, viewers, that we cut to the jingle? Oh, man, this is like a high-wire act that you wouldn't believe. Uh, what do you say? Uh, let's start doing some questions. And our first question this week uh, is an email question, and it reads, Hi, Mike. What do we understand about night owls versus early birds? How real is the idea that we're inclined to one or the other? How much is it habit and how much is biology? And how good or bad is it for us to go against our inclinations for long periods of time? My husband, of three months exactly as I write this, and I are working on navigating very different sleep orientations, giving, uh, especially given he is an early bird and is anxious by my night owl late sleep schedule. I need to work on my sleep habits in many ways, but it would be good to have some scientific guidance to help set both of our expectations. Thanks for everything you do and are. I'm grateful for the ways your presence has brought me and many others calm, grace, and joy. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you, first of all, for such a wonderful, thoughtful, and kind comment at the end of a great question. And this is a question that many people face, this whole circadian rhythm thing. And it is true. We definitely have different biological orientations or biases toward different sleep patterns. And this is really important. Those patterns change over the periods of our lives. We aren't necessarily fixed in one or the other. Children tend to be more naturally uh, larks, morning risers, young children. And then in our teenage years, most people shift toward a night owl rhythm naturally. And then in adulthood, we start to find out kind of our intrinsic pattern for a time. For most of adulthood will be one of several different chronotypes is the word we're looking for here, a type of a circadian rhythm response. Uh, and then as we move into senior adulthood, many people find themselves becoming more naturally larks again as uh, senior adults need less sleep than other age groups. Excuse me. Gosh, I got the allergies today real bad. So does that have a basis in biology? Absolutely. It is not just habit and conditioning. I am a natural lark. I feel most alert early in the mornings. I get very sleepy when the sun goes down, and I want to wake up when the sun comes up. And my wife is a night owl's night owl. I think she finally starts to feel awake and alert about 9 p.m. And given uh, her own choice, she would stay up until the wee hours of the morning, and then sleep until noon. And therein lies the problem. One of these isn't better or worse, but we've definitely oriented society around a daytime schedule. And it is more harmful for you to get less sleep than you need than to shift your chronotype. So um, when you talk about sleep habits or sleep hygiene, this is very, very important and something that people tend to be pretty bad at. Um, but we really need at least six hours of sleep a night. Most people are going to need seven and a half to eight and a half hours of sleep a night. Some people, and in different situations, need even more than that. Sometimes I'm a 10-hour-a-night guy where I will need to sleep nine or 10 hours to feel refreshed. It's probably related to the fact that I have narcolepsy. And so we see, absolutely, there are different chronotypes and chronotypes living together can be challenging in relationships, as you've discovered. 
I'll have a link in the show notes right below wherever you're watching or listening to an article in Psychology Today called, Are You a Morning Lark or a Night Owl? Now, there are more than two chronotypes, but I think this simplification is okay for our purposes in this conversation. And we have found that, believe it or not, the most satisfying relationships tend to be among people who share a chronotype uh, with one particular uh, point of emphasis. Most people, uh, we find uh, sexual activity correlates with relationship sex satisfaction pretty well. There are exceptions. Not everybody, uh, asexual people in particular, don't have a great association with sexual activity and relationship satisfaction. But for many people, the two things are correlated and predictive of each other. And we have found that um, men, women who are larks and night owls typically prefer to have sex before they go to sleep while men who are night owls like to have sex before they go to sleep, but men who are larks like to have sex when they wake up. And this kind of gap in when we'd like to have sex and when we'd like to have physical intimacy can cause tension in relationships. That is a real thing that has been documented and studied. There are other complications as well. My wife likes to have quality time in the evenings, Nothing makes her happier than for me to stay up and watch a show with her, maybe until 11 p.m., and that is extremely difficult for me to do. I will usually fall asleep in my chair and uh, then in you know a state of, of at least mild disappointment, she'll say, ah, just go to bed. Gosh, you're snoring. So um, this is something that we have to work on in relationships, and there has to be a give and take. Uh I, when I wake up very early in the morning, and sometimes I will wake up at, gosh, 4.45 or 5 a.m., and then I try to tiptoe quietly out of the room because that is an inhumane hour for me to wake up my night owl wife. Uh, And she's gotten pretty understanding that when it's 9.45 and I just can't go anymore, she understands that I need to go to bed. And with those kind of different approaches to sleep and wakefulness, We often have to be very intentional about the times of day where we seek out each other's attention, time, and support. It's easier for me to do a mid-morning coffee date uh, than, you know, quality time watching a movie in the evening. Uh, And that's usually something she can tolerate as well. Same thing, kind of a mid-afternoon thing can often be worked out for quality time. Of course, in the middle of a pandemic and COVID-19, I think intimacy is challenging for anyone who has kids at home. And we're no exception there, Uh, but, you know, we do our best. And that often means trying to figure out times in uh, the earlier evening uh, when we can be together. This is all uh, very real stuff. Um, And it'll just require patience for two chronotypes to live together. It's not impossible, though, by the way. My wife and I have been married almost 20 years, and we've managed to make it work, even though I am a lark. And she is a night owl. Okay. Our next question today uh, also is from email and it reads, Kia Ora. Hello, Science Mike. I love the show and I've learned so much from so many episodes. What I would like to know is how we can encourage indigenous viewpoints and ideas in geoscience when it is one of the least diverse sciences around? How can we apply indigenous understandings of the world 
with a predominantly white science, especially around climate change, which I believe is an area where those of European extraction can learn a lot from indigenous people. Thanks for the great work you do. Kia Kaha, be strong. Michael from Auckland, New Zealand. And I'd like to apologize if I absolutely murdered those pronunciations. Oh, and by the way, Michael included a link to an article in the New York Times called Earth Science Has a Whiteness Problem, which will also be in the notes below this video or in the notes in the podcast player that you are listening in right now. And there is no question that whiteness in the sciences is a massive problem. Absolutely massive. To say geoscience is one of the least diverse sciences is an incredible accomplishment because none of the sciences uh, have inclusion or diversity respective of the populations uh, which they represent. This is an incredible travesty uh, worldwide, especially in Western countries and colonized countries. Um, we have a real problem with representation in the sciences. And there are no easy solutions here because this is an incredibly complicated and multivariant problem. It requires a certain amount of educational access, recreational access, and other resources for someone to have a high propensity to become a scientist. We understand that science, for many reasons, becomes a field dominated by white men. Uh, we understand that grade school age children excel at science and math, and sometime around middle school, uh, social pressures begin to apply to girls who show an appreciation for math and science. There is no culture that supports or facilitates gifted young girls uh, of any color to continue appreciating science and math as they grow. This is a big problem. It's a cultural problem. But then when we think about the kinds of activities that often inspire children to become scientists, Lots of time outdoors, observing nature or the or the natural world. Uh, access to reading materials and uh, the time to actually spend in uh, reading and research as children and as middle schoolers and as high schoolers. We find pretty quickly that all of these things have economic access barriers. So we have a structural problem, the way in which economic resources are wildly racially segregated in our societies, especially in the United States, creates a pipeline problem where fewer children of color have the opportunity and the interest to pursue a field, a career in science, because they have been systematically excluded from the economic and educational resources that lead to that kind of a career path. It's a structural problem, which means to solve it, we have got to fix the structural issues. Economic inequality, universal in our society, is the primary root of the problem of whiteness in science. If you fix that problem in a generation, we won't see the same, same issues around inclusion. In the meantime, that means we need to do everything we can in affirmative action. I know affirmative action, for some reason, 
becomes like this terrifying notion for many people, especially white people. I get it. I understand that those feelings exist. But when you look at the data, there is no question that we simply as a society have given more money to white people. Therefore, our children are more likely to pursue university education and postgraduate education because they have the resources to do so. And they've been trained from childhood to participate and move in systems in ways that make their test scores higher and their applications more compelling to largely white review boards. White culture becomes the dominant framework for communicating and excelling in universities and the academy and research institutions and companies that fund scientific research. It's an absolutely structural problem, which means we've got to tip our finger on the scale and create a balance intentionally by paying attention to how many people of color are in our PhD programs and our undergraduate programs and our research programs and our private companies doing research. And we have to intentionally hire people to close that gap. And once we hire them, we have to listen to them about the ways in which we can collaborate in doing scientific work, including within geoscience. There is no easy answer to this because this is a problem that stems from the fundamental white supremacy at the heart of Western cultures. Now, let me be honest for a moment. I've grown very frustrated because when I talk about issues of race and racism and white supremacy, I've noticed that my friends in the United Kingdom, in Canada, and Australia, and New Zealand, and Western European countries say, oh gosh, Science Mike, why are you talking so much about racism? That's an American problem. No, friends, that is not an American problem. Just because your countries have less of a problem with white supremacy and race does not mean you don't have a problem with white supremacy and race. Doing better than the United States on matters of white supremacy is simply no accomplishment at all. You cannot pat yourself on the back for saying, yay, we're better than the U.S. The U.S. was founded on the genocide of native people and the exploitation of Africans in the slave trade. That is how the United States came to be the wealthy, powerful nation that it is by stealing land and stealing labor. So yeah, okay, congratulations. You're doing a better job than the U.S. That does not mean you are doing a good job. What we are seeing in every Western country is a rise of white nationalism right now. Every country is struggling with this, including France, Germany, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands. It's a universal problem. It means we've got to start confronting white supremacy in our lives and in our systems as quickly as possible in as many ways as, problem, as possible. Because as you... Michael, so brilliantly alluded to in your question, the white approach to science and to world economies is killing us all. Climate change 
is an incredible problem. It turns out radical inequality is not a good way to structure a society. It isn't sustainable at a fundamental level. And I agree, we have so much to learn from indigenous scientists and scientists of color. And that begins with robust, well-funded, and government-mandated affirmative action programs and tearing down economic access barriers in uh, our entire society so that more children of color and more indigenous children pursue a career in the sciences. Good morning, Science Mike. Uh, this is Donnie, a long-time listener, first-time caller. I uh, have a, same, a similar story to probably many of the, your listeners in that I was an evangelical Christian, um, even a pastor for many years, and have since deconstructed a lot of that. Um, one of the things that I have deconstructed uh, along that path is uh, some of the things of purity culture um, that were passed on to me. I now have four kids two girls and two boys. Um, uh, my oldest girl's only eight, but I'm starting to think about things like um, sleepovers and um, and certain things that are <clears throat> uh, difficult topics to, um, to come up in how we start talking about um, sexuality and keeping her safe and um, modesty and all those kinds of things and trying to balance that idea of not propagating anything that has to do with rape culture or purity culture, but also um, trying to help her be safe um, and help her learn um, good strategies. You know, obviously one of my worst fears is having anything um, abuse-wise happen to my daughter, and I would hate for anything like that to happen, so I want to keep her safe, but I also don't want to have um, any shame associated with herself or that she would be the cause of any of those kinds of things. Um so how do I approach that topic? How do I talk about um, sexuality and sex with her? How do I talk about modesty? How do I talk about um, even things as as complicated as masturbation? That was something that I was, um, it was absolutely taboo as I was growing up. Um, and obviously lots of shame cycles and things that went along with that. And um, I would hate to pass that on to them, but I also don't know what the right way to talk about that is. Um, and some of those kind of things. I'd love for you to point to any resources or any things that you have um, learned or gleaned as you have gone ahead um, in this process as your your uh, your daughters are older um, than mine and uh, would love to learn anything you have to share on that topic. Um, even to the extent of um, I don't necessarily in my heart still agree um, that saving yourself for marriage, quote unquote, is the only way. Um, and yet it's what I did, and I'm very happy with my decision, um, just not happy with how that decision was given to me. Um, and um, I'm just not sure how to approach that topic with her, because I obviously don't want her to um, give that away willy-nilly, um, but I also uh, want to give her freedom and reduce the shame uh, that's in that cycle. Uh, I think those are my questions. Um, thanks very much for your time. You are a huge. I think I cut off the audio there. I am so sorry. <laughs> this is a live. Uh, I don't know how to edit when I do this. So uh, we'll just have to go on. I think you could see uh, the end of the question there in text. Uh, 
Um, I made some notes while I listened to your question. And um, the first thing I want to say is good for you. Good for you. Good for you for wanting to confront rape culture and patriarchy and the kind of puritanical sexuality that so many of us in the United States and around the world grew up in because we know that it's destructive to human flourishing. We know that boys and girls and people of all gender identities suffer under these sexual assumptions and these shame-based approaches to sexuality. We know that they're linked with all kinds of social ills, not just sexual harassment and sexual assault, which are horrible in and of themselves, but also unwanted pregnancies and teen pregnancies and the transmission of sexually transmitted infections, things that we all universally agree on that are um, problematic and difficult and cause people pain seem to be intensified by shame-based approaches to discussions around sex and sexual culture. Uh, and so I'm just, I just want to start by saying, I'm just so proud of you for thinking through this and being curious and being brave enough to ask questions about something that is difficult for so many of us to talk about. This is a process that I've been going through for some time now. I started to examine and question the patriarchal shame-based assumptions of evangelical Christianity. Oh gosh, uh, about 11 years ago. So I've been uh, I've been on this road for a while. Um, my daughter was very young. My oldest daughter was very young when I first started to contemplate and think about these things. It was before my second daughter was born. And uh, one of the best things that happened to me and how I understand sex and sexuality was losing my faith for a while because as I jettisoned a lot of theological baggage, I was able to take a fresh look at sex and sexuality and the data around that and the good scholarship around that. I'd say, first of all, that we have tremendous allies in feminists. Feminists and womanists have been thinking about and writing about and studying sexuality for decades and decades, and their perspectives are useful and necessary for people, including and perhaps especially men, trying to understand sexual norms and cultures in our society. So I would say, Pick up a good feminist book. There's many, many, many writings of feminists uh, out there on sexuality. Um, I won't even tell you where to begin. You can find many reading lists online. And, and that process is essential because something you've got to do as a dad is confront the patriarchy in your own sexuality and your own approach to parenting. I hear in your question some familiar themes from when I started to question the ways that we approach sex and sexuality and relationships between people of different genders, or for that matter, sexual relationships of people of the same gender. And um, you've got to start unpacking those assumptions. For you to talk to your children well about sex and sexuality, you've got to start to have a positive relationship with yourself about sex and sexuality. I've heard that you've been confronting your shame. Continue to do that. Continue to work with a therapist or mental health professional on that journey. It is difficult. Here's a couple of points on that note, not just for you, 
but for everyone who would be listening right now. Our children, including our daughters, do not belong to us as parents. Children don't belong to parents. We have a lot of expectation in our society and in our culture that children basically have to behave as with absolute subservience to adults, especially to their parents. This is a foundation of rape culture. How does someone understand that they have control over their body when that is not modeled in their own home? Our children do not belong to us. Our job is not to control our children, which is a fool's errand, which will frustrate us and our children. Our job is to train children how to take responsibility for their own agency. That is our job. And that means setting boundaries, especially when children are young and they can't hold their own boundaries. So we help establish boundaries for them. And then over time, taking an increasingly less active stance in holding and maintaining those boundaries. I've noticed two approaches that we often have as parents. One is to be punitive and controlling. And our children seem to behave well when they're young and then things come apart when they're teenagers and young adults. Or parents tend to be supportive but wildly permissive and their children don't learn the boundaries that not only make them able to function in society, but actually be happy with themselves. Research is very clear that what makes the happiest and healthiest children is clear boundaries and expectations from parents that are combined with emotional support. You need both of those things in your relationship with your children. And to talk about sex and sexuality well, you just need a good relationship with your kids. And that means setting boundaries and expectations and providing emotional support. The traditional ways of parenting in the United States, in Canada, and in most Western countries has been to either have expectations and boundaries or be emotionally supportive or neither. And what we're learning from research is the best approach is to offer both expectations and boundaries and emotional support for our children. And that means you're going to try to establish a relationship based on trust with your children. And that means you're going to have a non-judgmental and non-reactive communication style. When I'm talking to my children about anything, I'm careful to talk about them, talk with them about any topic in a way that's non-judgmental and non-reactive. Just like it is on this podcast, my children know every question is not only okay or allowed, but encouraged and cherished. I talked to both of my daughters about sex and sexuality starting when they were very young. And it's because, number one, there's nothing wrong with talking about sex and sexuality. It's not an inappropriate topic for children. Children should understand that their bodies are wonderful, normal things. We know it's very clear even infants experience sensations associated with general, genital stimulation. We know that infants and toddlers start to stimulate their own genitals at a very young age. 
And our reactions to those early explorations can set the tone for how children relate to their bodies. So when my children were very young and they would begin to explore their bodies, we would simply encourage them to move to a more private setting to say that that kind of special time with yourself is something that you just do when you're on your own. But we didn't set any shame about it. We've always been careful to not use special code words for parts of the human body. I think part of the problem where we get shame-based approaches to sexuality is when we have to nickname the parts of our body. There's nothing wrong with the word penis or testicle or nipple or vulva or vagina or clitoris or labia. When we speak about these terms plainly, when children are young, we teach them that there's no shame in their bodies. We also teach children about their bodies and their right to their bodies and the importance of consent. It means every person has a right to decide when they may be touched, where they may be touched, and by whom they may be touched. I'm so grieved when I see parents telling children that they have to hug an adult who has started to pout because the children is not in the mood to be touched. When we do that, we train people to be victims of sexual assault, and we train people to be victims of molestation. When children understand that no one gets to decide when they are touched but them, then they feel the empowerment and the agency to stand up for themselves, and they become less likely to be victims of coercion and sexual assault. This is very important. This is very vital. And as we teach children these things, we teach them the opposite as well, in that children, including boys, need to understand that they may not touch others if the other person hasn't consented and invited that contact. You see what I mean? When we take a daughter's only approach to sexual safety, we ignore a huge part of the problem in molestation and sexual assault. Boys, girls, people of all gender identities need to know only you get to decide who touches you where and how. And you have no right to touch another person without their permission. Now, as my daughters have grown, my girls are teenagers now, as you've alluded to, here's something that's very important to me. My daughters decide when and who they will date and when and who they will have sex with. That is not my decision. I'll say that again. My daughters decide when and who they will date and when and who they will have sex with. It's not my decision. What's my job? To train them to take responsibility for their agency work I have been doing since they were infants. And now that my daughters are teenagers, I trust them to make good decisions. And I trust them to come to me with questions. And we have a rapport that I feel comfortable going to them with concerns and offering feedback based on their choices. That is not work that started when they turned 11. That is work that started when they were born. My job 
I've always approached parenting as teaching my children the benefits and consequences of different strategies and actions they can take. And that includes with sex and sexuality. That means I rage against gender-based dress codes. Anytime I see a disparity in society about how we approach men's bodies and women's bodies, I stand in solidarity with my wife and daughters as a feminist. In terms of modesty, if it's okay for a boy, you better be damn right it's okay for a girl or a person who's non-binary or a person who is trans. I refuse to be complicit in a system that tells my daughters that their body is in some way uniquely tempting or provocative. It makes me angry just thinking about it. It just makes me angry thinking about it. I've always focused on talking openly with my children about everything, including sex and their bodies. I've tried to have an age-appropriate conversation about consent and sex and rape. I've tried to teach my children that it's against the rules for anyone to touch them without their consent, as it's against the rules to touch another person without theirs. I've been sure to mention over time that an abuser or an assaulter could be an adult friend, a family member, or another child. I've taught my children not to give out their email addresses, home addresses, or phone numbers while using the internet, an important part of safety. I've taught my children that if something seems uncomfortable or if they seem resistant to being with a person, I don't force them. My children have given me great feedback about sleepovers and what adults they are comfortable being around. I've taught my children that no means no. And I've taught my children through example and through support to be confident in their emotions, in their self, and their decisions, and to respect the emotions and decisions of other people as well. These strategies, when combined, I got to tell you, I'm really proud of who my daughters are as people. They're wise. They make good choices. They are honest, and they communicate openly. I don't take credit for that. But I have done my best to help them discover who they are on their own and to empower them to have the information to understand the impacts of their own agencies. I have not told my children that sex is a sin or that they have to save themselves until marriage. But I have told them that safe sex is a myth, but there's always a risk of pregnancy and sexually transmitted disease. And so being careful and selective about how many partners we have and when we have partners and what protective measures people use during sexual acts is essential in minimizing those risks that can never be completely eliminated. It means my children, hopefully, aren't terrified of sex, that it's not a taboo topic, and that they are relatively comfortable with their own body's desires and drives around sex, sexuality, and physical contact. At the same time, they feel empowered to dictate to others the way in which they will engage in such activity. At the end of the day, what we're talking about is a fundamentally different approach to relationships between parents and children. 
I've just kind of, I just think the psychology is clear that the traditional parents as CEO model has a lot of fall faults, as does parents being best friends of their children, likewise seems to have uh, developmentally consequential um, downsides. And I've tried to go with a research-based approach where I set clear boundaries and expectations for my children and freely offer emotional support to meet those boundaries and expectations, as well as support when they don't. And that's the strategies I've been implying or applying these years as a parent. And I probably won't know for a few more years how well they've worked. Well, you've done it. You've made it through another episode of Ask Science Mike. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts or a podcast player, or you've watched the first ever video edition of Ask Science Mike on YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook, which reminds me, friends, I am making so much stuff now. Uh, so you can catch me multiple times a week on Facebook Live, on Instagram, and YouTube. I've got a new series of videos uh, encouragement Mondays. I've got uh, Science Wednesdays. I've got Autism Fridays. That stuff is out there. Ask Science Mike now. We're going to try to expand that into video content as well, especially depending on how this episode went and the kind of feedback I get from uh, Tanner and Victory. I'd like to thank several uh, folks for making this show possible. Number one, and always my patrons on Patreon who fund this program. If you'd like to help make this show financially possible and in the process, take over the show and run it, uh, you can learn more by visiting AskScienceMike.com and clicking on the Patreon button. Uh, I'd like to thank Caitlin Hermstad for producing Ask Science Mike, Greg Nordine for production and sound design. Uh, executive producer is Victory Palmazano, logistics and other support by Tanner Hearn and the team at Inverse. Britt Cradle provides management services. Um, my daughter Macy provided some switchboard operating as we uh, got this episode uh, set up. And the Ask Science Mike theme song was written and recorded by my dear friend, Jeb Bodiford. Thanks for listening, everybody. And I can't wait to talk with you next week. <laughs>